Welcome to The VergeCast, the flagship podcast of The Action Button. I'm your friend David Pierce, and I'm having one of those days, I assume everybody has days like this, where you wake up at some outrageously early hour, and you look at the clock, and you're like, oh, cool, I have five more hours to sleep. But then something in your brain is just like, no, we are awake now. Anyway, that's the kind of day I'm having. I've been up since like two o'clock this morning. I read a bunch of news. I read a book. I looked at TikTok for a while. I saw every single thing that has like ever been posted to Reddit in history. I did all the New York Times games. And somehow it's still like first thing in the morning. It's a very confusing way to start the day because I kind of feel like it's lunchtime now. Now I'm out just like aimlessly wandering the neighborhood because I don't know what else to do with myself because the sun just came up and I've been awake for what feels like a hundred hours. Anyway, it's going to be a very confusing day. I'm going to get to 2 p.m. and be like, well, time for dinner, time to go to bed. Wish me luck. Anyway, we have an awesome show coming up for you today. We're going to talk mostly about the iPhones because it's iPhone season. We have reviews of the iPhone 15 and iPhone 15 Pro to talk about. We're also going to talk about our reviews of the Apple Watch and the Apple Watch Ultra. But we're also going to talk about software stuff. There's obviously new stuff in iOS 17, interactive widgets and all kinds of cool things going on. But more broadly, thinking about all this stuff over the last few months has really led me down this rabbit hole of phone personalization. I think the work people are willing to do to make their phone feel like an extension of themselves, whether it's a case or the wallpaper or the app icons or the look and feel of the whole phone in general, people are willing to do a lot so that when you turn on the screen, it makes you feel something. It makes you feel like you. And I think that's really cool. So I called up a couple of smart people to talk about how we do that and how that works and how Apple thinks about that. So we're going to dig into that too. All of that is coming up in just a second. But first, it is finally time that I can go home and like reasonably make breakfast and have coffee and start the day and also probably take a several hour nap and see how we do. So I'm going to go do all of that. And then we'll be right back. This is The Vergecast. We'll see you in a sec. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome back. All right, I've had coffee, I've had Cheerios, I kind of know what time it is, I'm ready, let's do this. The new iPhones go on sale this Friday, and our reviews of the iPhone 15, 15 Plus, 15 Pro, and 15 Pro Max are all live on TheVerge.com. You should read them all, they're all really great. I don't know if this is the most interesting phone of the year exactly. In fact, it's definitely not the most interesting phone of the year if you define interesting as just like the one trying to do the most new cool stuff. 
but it's almost certainly the one the most people are thinking about buying. But should you? And which one? Who better to answer that question than the people who reviewed the phones? The Verge's Allison Johnson and Dan Seifert. They're both here. Let's get into it. Allison, hello. Hello. Dan, hello. Hello. You both have used two of the four phones. You've done big reviews. Uh, I have a million like specific questions, but let's just kind of like top line takeaways from your reviews. Like, are these phones any good? Yes or no? Who cares? Dan, you go first. iPhone 15 and 15 Plus. What's the verdict? Yeah, in a shocking turn of events, Apple released a turd of a device. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, this is the 15th iPhone. Like it's it's like they've been doing this a long time. They know how to make iPhones. Yes, they are good devices. In fact, you could probably say they are great devices. And I think that I reviewed the 15 and the 15 Plus. I think if people buy them, they're going to be really happy with them. The type of person that buys this phone typically is coming from a much older iPhone. And so they're not coming from an iPhone 14, probably not a 13. So we're talking like a 12 or an 11 or maybe even a 10S. And they are going to get a lot of new features and new experiences, plus better camera, better battery life, better performance, better display, all that stuff. So I think it is like a meaningful upgrade for the type of person that is buying this. Are the 15 and 15 plus all that exciting to us, like enthusiasts and maybe our audience? Probably not. Like we've seen all of these things before. They are, I've been calling them a repackaging of the 14 Pro. They've got most of the same features as the 14 Pro, but not all of the features. Notably, they have uh, they don't have high refresh rate screens and they don't have always on displays, which is like two things that I think would make a better experience on these devices. And we're going to come back to both those things. Yeah. But like, otherwise you get the dynamic Island, you get a high resolution camera, Apple's changes to the design this year by just kind of softening the edges and the matte glass and stuff do make them nicer to hold, which you'll never experience because you're going to put a case on it anyways, but it's there. Uh, and then they come <laughs> in five very boring colors. The rage you feel about the colors really like it. it it's just it, like it fills me up in a lovely way. <laughs> I, do, I, I don't I get it. it. Like, why bother with colors if you're going? If this is what you're going to do, <laughs> the, and and we know Apple's done good colors in the past. So. Yeah, Apple is perfectly capable of making cool colors. It just chose not to this year for yes. some reason. Like, if you find yourself making a color that you call natural, like you've done it wrong. <laughs> you've just you blew it. Uh, all right, Allison, the Pro and Pro Max. What's the what's the kind of top line verdict here? Yeah, it's kind of along similar lines. I mean, they're good in the ways that we are used to a pro iPhone being good. I think the new things here this year are like certainly not breakthroughs and anyone on Android who's hearing me talk about USB-C and like a five times zoom lens is, you know, like cackling. Yeah, we should just say right up top, like <laughs> Android users, like we know yeah, <laughs> the, yes. the number of things we're going to say that Android phones have had since like 2004. Like we get it. We're, we're with you. We're on the same page. The S23 Ultra is a terrific phone. Yes. Just let Apple people have this one. Just just for today. <laughs> yeah, just, just let today. Apple people have this. Like a blanket statement of like, I get it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it is the first time these things have all come together on an iPhone. And I think they're they're smart in the pro. They're things that, you know, being able to to hook up like an SD card reader that isn't a special lightning dongle situation is cool and like I appreciate that someone who is maybe just just wants a phone just wants it to work is doesn't really care so much but it's there the five time zoom you know is is neat for people who want to get 
in there a little more and who are a little more picky about their photography and the action button is just nice. Like you want a button that does whatever you want on your iPhone, you can have it now. Like that's super sweet. Okay. I have a bunch of specific things in there I want to talk about. I think USB-C is a, is a big one. And I, w- I want to spend a bunch of time talking about that because that surprised me a lot from both of your reviews. But the first thing that jumped out at me that you both said, which I thought was surprising, was that the new phones feel different, like to hold in your hands than the other ones do. Like, I feel like I'm used to Apple saying every year, like we've developed an all new way to make these phones that will change everything. And then you pick it up and it's like, yep, this is still that one. It's an iPhone. But both of you had the experience of kind of picking up the new one and being like, this feels, this feels better. Mm-hmm. Walk me through that. What What's actually better about it when you hold it? So I live the life, you guys know, where I have like 10 phones on my desk at once. And I will reach for the 15 Pro and pick it up. And I just have that moment of like, ooh, this is a little nicer than <laughs> I was expecting. Like it's the brushed finish on the sides of the phone. It's, they're a little more rounded, the edges. So they're, they're just like, a tiny bit more comfortable to hold. And really the major thing is on the pro models, especially just being noticeably lighter. Like they're not light phones, but if you ever held a 14 pro max, then you know the experience of like holding a paperweight in your hand. Yeah. It's a, it's a big phone. Yeah. This, this feels like holding a normal phone. It doesn't feel like holding a super heavy phone. Okay. And so how much of that is like the the titanium and all the stuff they talked about in the pro versus just kind of the the way they've reshaped it because dan you had a very similar experience in kind of how the lower end phones feel right yeah you know the the lower end phones i guess the the 15 and the 15 plus they're technically the same weights or within very small minute differences of last year's models Um, but if you're coming from like an iphone 11 an iphone 15 is like noticeably lighter like the order of more than 20 grams which is is absolutely noticeable i've been on my personal phone's an iphone 13 pro and that just feels like a lead weight to me the 15 plus which has a much larger screen is actually technically lighter than my 13 pro and so you know you, you may say like oh 10 20 grams here it doesn't really matter like when you're holding these things all day long and you're putting them in and in your pocket or whatever like i feel every single gram that gets added and it's like my biggest complaint with the iphone for the past few years the pro models at least is how heavy they've become because apple is stuck with the uh stainless steel frame and the polished and the premium all that jazz um so i'm really excited that the pro models move to titanium but i also appreciate that the standard model also benefits from the softer edges on the frame so that it doesn't cut into your pinky or your your palm as much when you're holding it. The back glass is now a frosted or matte finish, which is like nicer to hold. I think that makes it a little bit more slippery. Uh, anyone who's owned a pro phone for the past few years kind of knows what that back glass feels like. It's a, kind of a slippery experience. Again, most people are going to put cases on these and it all kind of doesn't matter, but they just feel like nicer objects. And that's like befitting of what the prices are because really even the less expensive phones are starting at $800. And at this point, like that is like purely in premium phone territory. You can get really like advanced devices for this much. I mean, if you find a good deal, you'll find a flip phone from Samsung for that much money. So like, you know, you have to like kind of justify what the cost is that you're paying for. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but you know, part of it is the experience of the tactile device. And, and I think that these are very well made. It's very obvious that Apple has been making iPhones for a very long time. Uh, and they've continued to like kind of iterate and polish them to, to make them a nicer experience. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Allison, this one's just for you. And then we're going to go back to things Dan's allowed to talk about. Uh, Action button. What did you do? Well, I don't care about anything else about the iPhone 15. (laughs) I care so much about the action button. Button. There's a new button. I so I put it to open the camera, which I thought I would really like because I I struggle with swiping on the screen to open. I don't know why. The number of people I have heard say that in the last seven days is so fascinating. I feel like there are a hundred thousand ways to open the camera on (laughs) iOS. Another button to do it is the last thing I need. Oh my god! It seems like so many people struggle Uh with that same thing you're describing. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's always when someone else is looking at me using the phone too. They're like, take this picture. And you're like, ah. I don't know. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I, I, that's like the first thing I did. I was super excited about it, but then I noticed I just wasn't really using it for that. I, I think it's just like, I use the Pro Max a little more and I think having it just like, like it's that much taller and the action button is that much farther away. It just felt like a pain to, it was like kind of awkward to be like re- reaching around the back of the phone to, you know, push the button. But so I have other ideas for it. I'm going to, I'm going to do the shortcuts. Like y'all think I'm kidding about making it order me a pumpkin spice latte, but I am hundred percent doing that. <laughs> yeah. I'm back in my back in my natural environment so I can go wild with it now. I love that. Uh, Dan, you're not allowed to answer because you reviewed the loser funds. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Someday when you're allowed to have an action button, many years from now, what are you going to do with it? Uh, I hate to be really boring, but I I think I would probably use it for the ringer switch maybe. But like... I was thinking yesterday, there's a feature on Android that I really like that uh, if you flip the phone face down, it turns into do not disturb mode. And there isn't a way to do that on the iPhone, but I could set the action button to do not disturb. So like I could just like hold it for a second, put in do not disturb face down. It's more than like I want to do. I want to just flip it over and have it done. So I don't know. That's like my first initial idea. I, you know, Allison mentioned the camera. I think that what a lot of enthusiasts will do is set it up to open third-party camera apps, which right now is a pain, no matter which way you do it on the iPhone, whether it's from the lock screen or control center or whatever, opening a third-party camera app is kind of annoying. I think maybe you could set a widget on the lock screen now to do it, which is a workaround, but I've already seen the developers of Halide are like adding a toggle in their app to like let you do it from the action button. And so I'm sure a lot of people are going to do that. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Do Not Disturb because that was that was my thought too. Like somebody sent me a thing the other day where they had built a shortcut where whenever they plug their phone in, if it's after 10 p.m., it automatically switches it to sleep mode. And I was like, that's genius. But then this came out and I was just like, oh, it's the same thing. Like I, I can just punch on Do Not Disturb, which is the kind of thing that I'd like to like do often when I even just want to pay attention for a few minutes or whatever. And having a button that can do it seems very nice. I'm very into that. But okay. That's enough of that. I could also talk to you about interactive widgets for several hours, but we'll do that on another <laughs> podcast. Let's talk about USB-C because the thing that I think a bunch of us have discovered over the last eight days since this iPhone launched is that Apple made a much more open port than any of us expected. And I'm just assuming, knowing the two of you, that you've spent a lot of time over the last week plugging random things into the iPhone to see what would happen. Allison, what what have you been plugging into the iPhone and what has happened? Well, when we were shooting the video, you know, we had access to like an Ethernet cable and SD card and all this stuff. And yeah, it, it truly is like kind of mind blowing that you plug it in and it, it it doesn't it doesn't complain. It doesn't, you know, make you jump through a bunch of hoops like it just does whatever you're trying to do. And like 
We plugged in that Ethernet cable and turned off the Wi-Fi and the cell data, and it just had internet. It just had internet from a cable. It was like, who who saw that coming? What a world. I know. Yeah, I think we've been so conditioned for like, especially with the iPhone, for Apple to get in the way of what we want to do with it. That it's, it's like, it's a, it's, it feels a little silly to say that like, I plugged in an Ethernet cable and it worked. Or like I plugged in an SD card and I could see the files on it. Like, but we are just so conditioned to the iPhone's kind of like guard walled garden experience where you wouldn't think that you can normally do these things. And in the past, they required special hardware adapters. And even then it was still limited. So like it was kind of fun to just jam something into the USB port watch what happens and then be like, oh, that's the thing you would have expected to happen. And like, I don't know how often you're going to use Ethernet on your iPhone. Probably never. But photographers might use the SD card. Videographers can shoot directly to an SSD, stuff like that. Like all those things just kind of work. It's almost like it's a computer. Yeah, what a crazy idea. It does seem like storage is probably the most likely real use case for people, right? In part because it's a way to like get stuff off of your phone in a way that is not always easy, but also because like, I, I feel like a thing I have surprisingly often is I have something on a hard drive or somewhere else that I would like to be on my phone so that I can do something with. And you can just plug in external storage and it just opens up in the files app, right? Like that's pretty meaningful and new. Mm -hmm. And it's nuts that I'm saying that like, it's an exciting new feature, but, (laughs) but like, here we are. Are there, are there other things that you feel like rise to that level of like things people might actually use this port for other than charging? I think that some people might want to use it for video out. You can plug a USB-C cable to HDMI or to DisplayPort. It supports DisplayPort out at 4K60 resolution. So if you want to plug the phone into a TV and watch a video on the TV... You get you get screen mirroring basically, but the the if you're watching a video, you can make the video go whole sc- uh, full screen. That might be a, a use case for some folks. But again, yeah, I think you're probably right in that it is either USB hubs that allow you to plug in like USB A accessories or storage uh, are really going to be the main type of accessories outside of charging that you would use the USB C port for. Yeah, I just I just want to say, Allison, kudos for getting the sentence "Dex remains undefeated." into the 15 pro review because you, you you would think you could plug it into something and you might get a full-blown you know desktop environment on a screen but we we got a little we got a little dex win in the 15 pro review and that made me very happy and and they're so intense about like how good this processor is that you would think like okay so let me do something with it no you can play resident evil i will not lie i have had the thought that Stage manager feels like something that might appear when you plug your iPhone into a larger display sometime Uh in the near future. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I will do that once if that exists and then never, (laughs) ever, ever again (laughs) because it's stage manager. Okay, so the, the other thing we should talk about is the cameras. And I think especially on the Pro, Allison, there are a bunch of new things. There's a bunch of new, like underlying tech but in terms of like features for people there's the new telephoto lens the, the which is 5x zoom which i think is a big deal there are the new uh focal lengths on the default camera which you can move around and pick between it shoots 24 megapixels by default now am i missing anything like have those jumped out to you as like really making a difference in how you use your phone's camera every day yeah they're all things that i'm really appreciating and having that you know you could always like 
pinch and zoom a little bit if you feel like the standard camera lens is too wide. But there's something different about especially having those little like millimeter focal length equivalents in there. It just kind of warms your heart. It makes you feel like, oh, I'm taking I'm doing photography. I'm like a real I'm photographer. Taking, yeah, I'm taking yeah. <laughs> a, a picture at 35 millimeters, not 1.5x it like switches back to 1.5x as soon as you do it you get to be the person who says i make photos i don't take photos yeah like, that's, that's, right. that's what happens yeah i've been saying that all week and everyone's so tired of me i'm like Shh, i'm making photographs yeah no yeah. i i've like just very eagerly like incorporated them into how i think about taking pictures with an iphone and it's great i'm i'm happy with you know, all the flexibility we get this year. Yeah. Dan, you, I remember when it first launched, were very excited about the idea of the 24 megapixel default photos. Yeah. My worry was file size, right? And there's always the thing where it's like, it depends on where you put it, how much resolution you actually need and on and on. And we can debate that forever. But how good a photo do you want versus how many can you store on your phone is kind of a forever question. Like, did Apple find the right middle there? Yeah, I think with the 24... It's not as big of a file size compromise as, as some people might have expected. If you're using the default Heath mode, which I'm going to say Heath. Which either is or is not pronounced Heath, but we'll leave it alone for it's now. Heath. I noticed that it's about like, uh, you know, if a JPEG is or if a 12 megapixel image is two megabytes, a 24 is about three. That can vary. Uh, some, you know, photos, if they've got more detail in them and stuff like that can be larger. And so then the 24 megapixel will be larger. But when you go to 48 megapixel, it's double the 24. So that is like a significant difference. And that will eat up your storage. And I don't think you actually gain much in terms of detail with the side-by-side -side comparisons I did between the 24 and the full-size 48. You're not getting a lot there in terms of uh, extra detail because these are such small sensors. But with 24 megapixels, you're moving past the 12, which we had been at since the iPhone success, and you are getting a little bit more room to crop, maybe a little bit more room to digital zoom, as Allison mentioned, and a little bit more flexibility. But ultimately, you know, Apple likes to talk about how oh, you could blow it up to a 20 inch by 30 inch poster and do all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, no, you're not going to do that. Uh, it's a phone photo. It's still going to look like it comes from a phone, but it gives you a little bit more cropping ability after the fact without really compromising storage that much. These phones all start at 128 gigabytes now, which is not a terrible uh, starting point, especially if you're yeah. coming from an older one that had 64 gigs, you're getting twice as much storage, so you got more room for the photos. Uh, and Apple would love to sell you iCloud Plus storage, which it will do up to 12 terabytes a month now. It would, it would I mean, it would love to. Like, like yeah. so much. It would make Tim Cook personally thrilled to sell you 12 <laughs> terabytes of iCloud storage. Uh, Allison, you and I are both long-term anti-digital Zoom zealots, I would say. Uh, I believe it is criminal to just stand there and pinch and zoom on the screen to make your photos worse. But you, in the process of reviewing the 15 Pro and Pro Max, seem to have found some kind of zen with the way that <laughs> Apple is approaching this. Can you can you explain this to me? How did you, why does it feel like this works for you? Yeah, I, I think part of it is in my head when you're, when you're going to like a specific focal length and Apple is doing a little bit extra in the background with the processing, you know, it's not just it's not just upresing the image and you know, calling it a day. There's a fair amount going on with like deep fusion and then incorporating some detail from a higher resolution frame, which is either the 48 or 24 megapixel if you're in the 35 millimeter crop. How much of that makes a big difference? 
I don't know, but it makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like at ease with the picture that I'm taking. And I think that's something that we're all going to have to get more comfy with going forward because even walking, you know, comparing it with the Samsung S23 Ultra, which has that 10X lens, you know, I'm going to 5X to compare it to the iPhone. And that's not a native focal length that it has. It still looks better than the iPhone image, which is funny. So it just kind of changes how you have to think about like, like letting the, trusting the camera a little more and not being quite so picky about focal length. It is a weird thing. I mean, all of the process now is digital. Like every step of the way, computers are doing computer things. So I think I'm I'm also slowly learning to let go of the idea that if I do it at 1x, it is capturing a photo as photos were meant to be captured. And <laughs> everything else is like some computery uh-huh. lie. Like it's all kind of a computery yeah. lie at this point, right? Yeah. It's an illusion. We, we've, we've heard this from, uh, I know Google... When it introduced its uh, Super Res Zoom feature, it, it kind of said similar things that like if you were to use Super Res Zoom before you take the photo, you will get a better image than if you just took the photo at the wide angle and digitally cropped it afterwards. Because they're they're taking input from multiple frames and averaging them together and things like that. Whereas if you crop later, it is just a single frame that you have to work with. And Apple's doing a very similar type of thing here where it is averaging multiple frames, stacking them together. That's what Deep Fusion has been doing for a few years now. I think Allison, they're on like generation three or five of Deep Fusion, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then now they have the larger sensor that they can also pair higher resolution data from for details. So I know that like when I go get an iPhone 15 Pro and start using it, I'm going to lock it on 35 millimeter and never look back. That was actually going to be my next question is like, what's the right default setup here? Because the other it's part 35 is... 35 millimeter is the only correct <laughs> focal length. Okay, so we, we shoot 24 megapixel Heath images... 35 millimeter camera, victory forever. ProRes log video. (laughs) You can fit four photos on your phone and it's all over. If you want to be the cool street photographer, you shoot a 35 millimeter. There we go. That's true. That is proven. Asked and answered. All right. So let's, let's do some like straightforward buying advice here. So Dan, last year, it seems very clear that the people who wanted a 14 picked a 14 over a 14 plus mm-hmm. is there any reason to believe that's not going to be the case again of the like entry phones do we think the 14 is probably the one for most people the 15 jesus christ <laughs> so i you know i think uh last year with the 14 and the 14 plus it was kind of a weird scenario one the 14 plus didn't come out for quite a few months afterwards um so it, it didn't wasn't available at the same that's time true. and then the 14 plus was like, if you want a big screen and a big battery and, and Allison's review last year, like she made the point, like this delivers on both of those things, but it was doing it at $900. And if you wanted a 14 pro max, it was only 200 bucks more this year. The, uh, not only is the 15 and 15 plus available at the same time. So you will be able to take advantage of all the same carrier promotions or whatever. You'll be in the store. You'll look at it. It's like, Oh wow, this one actually is bigger, but it's also, it's still $900, but the bigger Pro phone, the Pro Max, has gone up in starting price $100. So now there's a $300 jump. And I think that starts to make it like, do I really need to go that much if I just want a big screen and a big battery? And I, I think that people will be making that calculus more. And, and maybe it'll do better for the Plus model. I, I can tell you that the Plus model this year absolutely delivers on battery life. I had a horrific travel day coming back from WWDC. I was staring at the 15 plus all day long. I had like something like eight, nine hours of screen time and I got home 
at like 11 or 12 and uh, midnight and i still had like 35 percent battery left like on it it was That's pretty like, good like this thing just goes and so for a lot of people big screen big battery is exactly what they want and uh 15 plus delivers i think if you are coming from a mini which if you have a 12 mini maybe you're getting around time to like needing a new phone the iphone 15 is obviously going to be much more attractive to you it's smaller it's lighter fits in your hand easier and stuff like that i think that's really the only practical option for anyone who wants a small iphone at this point point. and then the last point of consideration is as usual apple is selling last year's 14 and 14 plus for 100 dollars less than the 15 and 15 plus this year i think that this year the things you get for that $100 more make it worthwhile to get the 15. Last year, we had the opposite conclusion. The 14 was not that much better than the 13, and you can still buy the 13 for 100 bucks less, go save your money. But this year, you get USB-C, which is a more convenient, flexible way to charge. Uh, you get the Dynamic Island, which is uh, you know more pleasant, fun user interface, and it's going to continue to get more utilized as we go forward. And you do get meaningful improvements on the camera. We didn't really talk too much about it, but I think that the automatic portrait mode is a thing that people will actually really like and use and get a lot of value out of, especially the average consumer buying the iPhone 15 or 15 plus. So all of those things add up. I think they make it worthwhile to buy the 15 over the 14 this year. But if you have a 14, there's no reason to upgrade. There's mean there's probably not much of a reason to upgrade. But if you are on a 12 or 11 or older, then I think you, you get a lot here this year. The portrait mode thing is a good one. I knew there was something in the cool things in the camera list I was forgetting. And that's one. That's a big deal. Yeah. I, I, I think that, like, you know, I observe my spouse taking pictures of our kids all the time and she never switches to portrait mode or anything like that. Uh, she just snaps with the default camera. And now if she had an iPhone 15 or a 15 Pro, she can just do that. And then after the fact, I can go in the photos app and be like, oh, portrait mode. Cool. Uh, and I can play with it and whatever and make it pop more. And I think that there's probably a lot of people who, A never realized that they could switch to portrait mode because it was an entirely different setting or B didn't remember how, or didn't remember to do it in the moment when they're trying to capture the image, which is happening quickly in front of them. Because like Allison, they couldn't figure out how to get the button to work. Yeah. Just stuck on that home screen, <laughs> the lock screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then Allison, for you, the, the pro versus the pro max, again, screen and battery differences. Am I right in thinking that the 5x telephoto zoom is only on the pro max that's right okay so that's a big difference too like what how would you rank between the two like how, how should people choose which one to buy yeah it kind of throws all my usual like buying a new phone thinking out the window because i i think there you know there is kind of a different customer for the pro and the pro max and whether whether or not your current phone is working well is like less part of the equation but I think, yeah, the five times zoom is nice. I I get why it's only on the bigger phone. Google only puts it on his bigger phone. It's something I would consider going up to the bigger phone for, especially since it's a little bit lighter weight this year and it doesn't feel like such a burden carrying it around. But there's a lot to consider. And I think some people are just going to jump on, you know, the new pro iPhone. And I think like as silly as the word pro is and kind of meaningless now, I think there is a, a certain kind of person who like, if if your phone is kind of a big part of like how you work when you travel, you've got chargers for other things, or if, you, if you're a video creator and you can see yourself really, you know, using it more in your workflow, 
I think it does make sense for a, I don't think pros are the word I would use, but it makes sense for a certain kind of person. Yeah, it's like the iPhone 15 videographer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you if you shoot a lot of big files, you're the this might work. Yeah, extra yeah. is pretty good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of like have these discussions every year. Like, who is a person to buy a pro over a standard iPhone? And like ultimately at the end of the day, Apple sells a ton of pro phones. I think the reports from the 15, 14 generation was like the iPhone 14 was like single digit percentage more than the iPhone 14 Pro in terms of like numbers of people that bought it. So like people will buy the more expensive phone, I think, because it's more expensive, but also because it's nicer. I think a lot of people see the three lenses on the back, whether it's three X or five X, and they see that like, hey, this does more and and their carriers willing to subsidize half the price anyways. So, you know, I think we'll see a lot of people buying the pro models this year. And then the 15 and the 15 plus will be, you know, a much slower ramp up in terms of like interest and buying and people will buy them as their old phones break. But like the early adopter, the person who's upgrading every single year, they're, they're going to gravitate to the pro always. It's the exciting one. That's what I wrote in my review is like the regular 15 is never going to be exciting. It's never going to be like the platform for new ideas or technologies. The pro is always going to be that. So if you want that, if you want to experience that, you're always going to go with the pro. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's right. Um, all right. I'm gonna let you guys go here in a minute, but before I do, Will you guys hang out and do a hotline question with me really fast? Yeah. Just, it, mm-hmm. I think you're the right two people to help me answer this question. As a reminder, the hotline number is 866-VERGE-11. Call, ask us all your tech questions. Uh, and you can email vergecast at theverge.com if you don't want to call. But frankly, it's super fun when you call. It's nice to hear your voices. Uh, okay, let's hear, Dan, I have been pestering you about this all day. So I expect good things from you. But here we go. Let me just play the question we have for you right now. Hey there, guys. My name is Jordan. I had a question about the uh, new iPhone 15, specifically how you could charge other iPhones by plugging in a USB-C cable. Um, I know that if you do a USB-C to Lightning, it will always charge the Lightning phone. And if you use the iPhone, it will kind of do like a handshake action and charge the lesser charged of the two. My question is, you know, it'll it'll do like a 51% versus 50%, and then the 51% will start charging that one or whatever. But what if you take like an iPhone Plus and you plug in, say, a USB-C cable to another like standard iPhone 15, and they're both at like, you know, let's say the, the iPhone Plus is at like 45%, whereas the other one is at like 50%, right? So like the Plus technically has less battery percentage, but it has a bigger battery. What happens? Who wins that exchange? Does the plus charge because it technically has more battery with which to charge? Or does the phone with the higher percentage win every time? Thanks, and I uh, love the show. Okay, so this is maybe the most Vergecasty hotline question we have ever <laughs> I was, received. I was going to say. <laughs> I love it so much. I have an answer. Dan, I have been making you plug things into other things all day. <laughs> I've been also running down batteries to try and get the levels right or whatever. So <laughs> tell me what you know so far. So what I know so far is uh, he's correct that if you plug in a lightning iPhone to a USB-C iPhone, the USB-C one will always send power to the lightning iPhone. The lightning does not work the other direction. And also AirPods and watches, which is like the thing it's ostensibly meant for is to charge your small devices. Yeah. AirPods and watches it will charge those devices. They will not reverse charge the phone. 
But right now, I've got the iPhone 15 Plus, which is at 75% battery, and I've got the iPhone 15, which is at 96% battery. And I plug them in together with my USB-C cable, and the iPhone 15 is charging the 15 Plus. Whoa. So the theory is whichever one has the lowest amount of battery percentage on its meter, even if the real-life capacity is still more than the 15, uh, seems to be the way that the power goes. Uh, USB-C is kind of weird. You can kind of, like, sometimes unplug them and replug them, and it will do its handshake again and, like, switch roles with other USB-C devices. But with the iPhones, at least, it seems to be consistently happening that the one with the larger battery percentage charges the one with the lower battery percentage. So if you wanted to be a real mensch with your iPhone 15 and you've got a buddy who's got an iPhone 15 plus or pro max or whatever. And you, and, and you want to give them your battery and, and, and give them some juice and they will just suck all the life out of your phone no. to power up their big battery cells. You could do that, but it does do this at a pretty slow wattage. It's 4.5 watts, which is slower than slow wireless charging. So you're not going to be charging all that quickly, but I guess if you, you know, really are in a pinch, you can do it. Uh, I tried some other devices. The MacBook will always charge the phone. The MacBook could have like no power and it will still try to charge the phone. I plugged the iPhone 15 Plus into a Lightning iPad. And what happened was the Lightning iPad would start charging for a second and then it would say not charging because I think it's just not enough wattage. I plugged uh, the 15 Plus into a Windows tablet thing and it would give enough juice to wake the Windows tablet up and then it would try to charge the iPhone. So for the most part, you're not really charging larger devices with this, aside from the fact that you can charge the bigger iPhone with the smaller iPhone, which is kind of hilarious. If your friend with a 15 Plus asks you to charge up their phone, that's not a good friend. Yeah, I mean, where did <laughs> they go wrong in their, in their in their manage, life management where they need, they didn't <laughs> charge their phone that gets massive battery life? Yeah. Real friends charge their own phone? Is yeah, what you're that's saying? their problem. <laughs> I don't know. Good friends charge their own phone, but best friends charge everybody's phone. That's what I always Maybe. say. Maybe. The other weird thing you can do while we're on the topic is let me just uh, see if this actually works. I've got a, a, a MagSafe charger here. I'm going to put the phone on the MagSafe charger and watch it start charging. And then I'm going to plug it into another phone through a USB-C cable. And everybody charges. So you can daisy chain. Oh, <laughs> oh that's it. That's kind of rad. Yeah. I mean, I assume this is going to stop charging when it like overheats, but yeah. All of these things are like use cases that don't exist, but I think it's delightful <laughs> nonetheless. This is the, the potential of USB-C, the power of USB-C that we've been missing with the iPhone for That's however right. many years. It's here. I love it. All right. Well, listen, I hope that helps. USB-C is very confusing. Uh, and if we figure out the actual logic behind all of this, we'll be sure and let you know. But for now, go charge your friend's iPhones. Be a good friend. All right. Thank you both. We got to take a break. And then we're going to come back and talk about the Apple Watch. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. 
You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back. The iPhones aren't the only new Apple devices coming out this week. There's also the new Apple Watch Series 9 and the Apple Watch Ultra 2. The Verge's Victoria Song, our resident wearer of many fitness watches simultaneously, reviewed them both, and she's been using the new watchOS 10 software for a while as well. V and I haven't talked about this yet, but I have a feeling the software is actually the real story of the Apple Watch this year. But let's see if I'm right or not. V is with me here now. Hi, V. Hello. Dan Seifert's still here. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Just can't get rid of you this week. No, I'm a cockroach. (laughs) Okay, so my overarching thesis, V, about these new watches, and I am curious to hear if I'm right, is that the software this year is significantly more interesting than the hardware this year. 100,000%. Like the, well, okay, maybe like (laughs) 999,000. Like that 1% is the, so like if we're talking about hardware, the one little tiny stumble in your theory is the S9 SIP that enables all the interesting software updates. So it's still software. Explain what that, what that actually means in practice. Uh, So the S9 SIP is the first let's say, major, in scare quotes, uh, major processor update that the Apple Watch has had in a very long time. Because so far, it, the last few years, it's been a rebadged version of the processor from the year before. No real meaningful changes in terms of like features that it enables. But this year, it's actually got a 30% faster CPU and a four-core neural engine that... Uh, you know, that enables the double tap feature. Uh, mm. It enables a smarter Siri, smarter in the sense that it works offline now and uh, is supposedly 25% more accurate at dictation. And the screens are brighter. Yay. Because better power efficiency, but they're not going to give you better battery life for that power efficiency. They're going to reinvest it into brighter screens. Yeah, this is the thing I wish Apple would stop doing. Like, I, I actually think on most of Apple's devices, it's the right call, especially with the MacBooks. I think we've reached a point where, like, the battery life is terrific. Sacrificing a bunch of stuff to get me, like, a few more hours, I'm not sure is all that meaningful. I think especially with the entry-level watch, in this case, the Series 9, I would take small trade-offs to get, like, six more hours of battery life out of the thing. It's the only device of mine that reliably, consistently dies at this point. Oh, God, David, you just opened the can of worms, which is to say that there are two camps with regards to the Apple Watch and their battery life. There's the camp that's like, 
Don't even look at me in the face until this Apple Watch can last a week. How <laughs> dare you come back to me after yet another year with 18 hours of battery life. I spit. I spit on your grave, Patui. There's that crowd. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's the other crowd, which I think Dan belongs to this crowd, which is like, I have my little charging routine. My Apple Watch is never out of battery. You charge your phone every night. It's not that hard to just plop your Apple Watch on a charger at like a time when you're not using it, like the shower or 10 minutes before bed. Why are you complaining so hard? I will just state in my own defense, I would love to not have to have the routine. I just happen to have the routine out of necessity. Can I tell you my problem with this routine? (laughs) The, The correct time... You just said it, V, to charge your watch is while you're in the shower. And there's something about having a charger in the bathroom that I just can't, I can't do it. Maybe it's the specifics of my bathroom. I don't, we don't have to talk a lot about what my bathroom looks like. But the idea of just like having a cable dangling in my bathroom waiting for my Apple Watch is just like a bridge too far for me. I can't do it. You, you could just put it in your bedroom and just go back to your bedroom after your shower. See, see, David, David is in a mansion. His bedroom and oh. his bathroom are yeah. like four football fields They're apart. They're in separate He's going to miss all those steps. Who has the time? I know. No, my real problem is I forget to take it off until I'm already in the shower. And then I just kind of like huck it over to the sink. And that's my charging strategy. <laughs> but the actual features here, you basically named the three things I want to talk about. And it seems like from a pure hardware perspective... They're so similar that you couldn't tell which watch was which, right? Like you had the Ultra and the Ultra 2, and they're the same damn thing as far as like what the actual thing looks and feels like, right? Yeah. Uh, and I like I've told this story before, uh, but when I was at Apple Park and I had my Ultra out and I was, you know, taking comparison photos like this representative, very well-meaning, comes up to me. She's like, can you put your Ultra away? We wouldn't want you to lose it. And that's because it looks exactly the same. I've actually had to have a code this week when I'm switching straps and where I say out loud, the ultra is the one with the gray strap. The ultra two is the one with the pink strap. And like I've, I've basically been keeping the new ones in pink because pink is what's new. Love it. And I had to do that because even the back crystal doesn't say ultra two, it says ultra. So there's really no way to tell unless I like I have terrible eyesight. Um, If you read my reviews, you know, I complain about readability all the time. But I basically have to take the original Ultra straight up to my face and go, which one has that minuscule nick that I got one time that (laughs) only I know where it is. Uh (laughs) And that's how I tell the Ultra and the Ultra 2 apart as far as my review units go. Okay, good. So we can just leave the hardware aside because... It is what it is. The double tap seems like the thing, right? Like it's the thing Apple talked the most about. This feature has like been around for a while in some accessibility ways. Like just walk me through kind of how this thing like fits into your life as a watch wearer. So I actually think this is potentially one of the most significant updates just that Apple's ever put out, but it's just not flashy, right? First of all, it's in some capacity, it's been around since watchOS 8 and assistive touch. Right now, that tech is just being repurposed in a more general use capacity. It's supposedly it's built into the system. So it's more contextual. You don't have to do anything. Whereas with assistive touch, you have to go into the accessibility settings, you have to enable it, and you have to program it. Because for some people with limb differences, this is the only possible way for them to control the watch. It's how they're going to navigate menus. It's how they're going to operate the digital crown. If they have an ultra, it's how they're going to press the action button. 
So it's it's much more comprehensive and there's more gestures involved. There's a clench gesture, there's a single tap gesture. It, there's there's a, there's four actual gestures that you do with assistive touch. But double tap is just the double tap or more accurately the pinchy pinch. The pinchy pinch. The pinching mm. motion. Uh, <laughs> and you basically use it to control the primary function of an app. And what that means is say you get a phone call you pinchy pinch, it's going to answer the phone call. When you're like, I'm done with you. I'm going to hang up in a rage. Then you pinchy pinch again, and then it hangs up. Can you rage pinchy pinch? I'm not sure you can rage pinchy pinch. <laughs> you can rage feel right. pinchy pinch. You just do it really aggressively like you're an angry lobster. You just go, uh, I like it. And that's, that's <laughs> I, I can't wait to see the Wall Street bros in uh, out on the street just screaming at their assistant and then really violently <laughs> pinching to hang up at them. <laughs> I feel like you need to wear like castanets so that it like makes a loud noise when you pinchy pinch. That's how you really get your feelings across. Yeah. So that that thing you just described actually is one of the questions I have about watchOS 10. Because that, that idea that it's like the primary thing makes obvious sense to me in some ways, right? Like it's a it it should pause my music if my music is playing. But there are other ways where what is the primary thing I'm supposed to do with the tap here is substantially less obvious. And you're you're nodding like that has been true in practice. Has that been true in practice? Yes. Okay. Yes, it absolutely has. And, you know, Apple acknowledges this to an extent because there are two circumstances where you can customize what the pinch does. So that first is, as you mentioned, music playback. So you can do it and it can pause or it can play your your music. But I actually, that's not intuitively what I would want it to do. What I would want it to do is skip a track. And you can you know, edit it so that it skips a track. So I was just in the car the other day driving and I was like, nope, not this. Nope, not this. Nope, not this. I'm just pinching while I'm driving. And that's kind of actually safer than me reaching over to the car infotainment and just trying to flip through that way. So that's that's one way you can customize it. The other way you can customize it, and it has to do with Apple intuiting what you want, is the smart stack. So the smart stack is new with watchOS 10 because it's widgets just everywhere in watchOS 10. And the smart stack, you can either double pinch to scroll through your smart stack, or you can double pinch to select the first stack and only the first stack. And, you know, Apple's like, if they do their job right, and if they anticipate which widget you need at the right time of day, so that whenever you bring up your widgets, you just want to pick the first one there, you can pinch and select it, which to me, I'm like, wow, that's that's almost never. But do, in order to bring up the widgets, you have to scroll the digital crown or swipe up on the screen. So you're you already pinch. you can pinch. So you just wake it up, pinch brings up the widgets and then the second pinch will either scroll through ah, or select that first gotcha. top one. So for me, testing, that's been a nightmare because the first one that pops up has been the tips thing that I just can't go, get to go away, which goes away <laughs> after a while, but it's like, I don't need these tips. So I can't actually use that particular function, but those are the only two ways you can customize it. And for me with messages, like say I get a text, you pinchy pinch and it'll bring up the voice message reply. Makes sense. That makes total sense if you're just trying to keep things hands-free or single-handed. For me, though, I want to scroll through my quick replies and select one. I would love to do that, but that's kind of hard because pinching to scroll through your quick replies and then pausing and then pinching again to select it kind of is something that has to be a lot more intuitive. You can do that in assistive touch, 
but you can't really do that with the double tap. But that is what I wish I could do with it. Dan, you and I are both sickos for customization, I would say, as a, as a general rule. This strikes me as the kind of thing I would want tons of control over. Like, I should be able to decide in every single app what the double tap yeah. does. Well, I think we should we should clarify that uh, it does nothing in third-party apps. Yeah. Wait, is that true? Oh, okay. So developers can do it. They just haven't yet. Okay. No, they, they actually can't. What? V, correct me if I get this wrong. Developers can interact with double tap through notifications. So basically, if you get a notification in and you double tap, it will do what is like the default action on that notification. And developers can define that default action. So if you've got a notification that's like an email and the default action is a delete, you can double tap to delete it. Or you can double tap to reply to a message if it's in WhatsApp or something outside of Apple's messages. But if you are in a third party app, double tap doesn't do anything. Is that correct, V? Well, so far, I think I think you're right. I haven't been able to use it with any third party third party app right now, but this is also just like the first implementation of it. I imagine there's going to be a lot of trial and error as people use this for the first time. And I could see I could see ways ways down that third party apps will eventually get some ability to do it, but the problem really is that this is supposed to be contextual and intuitive. So you're having people you're basically trying to mind read what people are going to try and pinch for. And it's funny because, you know, I have a beta version with this enabled. Uh, There's no explanation on my version. I imagine there will be some short walkthrough in like the tips app when Apple releases this to the public, but there's no real explanation of what apps this works with and what it'll do within those apps. You just kind of have to go into the app and start like pinching like a weirdo and seeing what it does. And there's a little glyph or an icon that appears that shows you that you've just done it. And when you can't have any double tap gesture, it'll just like do a little shake that's like, nah, can't do it. So I've just been like this past few days just sitting there just going like, oh, does this, does this work? Pinch, pinch. Oh, no. Okay. Can't do that. Does this work? Pinch, pinch. Oh, no. Can't do that. So it can be really intuitive and also weirdly frustrating because you don't know when you're going to run up against the wall of the the pinch not working. Like timers is the other example I'm going to use. If you have talked to Siri and you have it, you have a timer going, and that timer app is front and center. When you do the the double tap, it'll pause the timer, and then you can you know, restart the timer. And when it ends, you can close the timer. I want, what if I want a timer to restart? I, I have several like Pomodoro method nonsense where I just want to restart a timer as soon as it's done. I can't do that. I actually have to go and figure out whether I'm going to ask Siri to set another timer or whether I'm going to go in manually and set that timer. So that's annoying. And then also if the, the, the timer app goes away, it's not front and center, then no amount of pinching you're going to do is really going to change anything until it goes off. So if you want to pause the, the timer while the timer app is not front and center, you can't do anything. So it's sort of like, that's weirdly annoying for me. I don't know if it'll be weirdly annoying for everyone. It just strikes me as a classic Apple kind of being too clever by half thing. Uh, and mm-hmm. like the thing it got really right with the action button was it was just like, just do just do whatever you want. Like, here's some options. We have some ideas. Just do just action action button on the phone. Let's, yes, let's clarify. <laughs> no, you're that's absolutely right. With the action button in the iPhone 15, which we were just talking about, that 
you have some control over and there's a cool interface for it and they're like this will work this is the equivalent of if they had taken the action button on the phone and been like in every app it will do the thing we think it should do it's like apple like sometimes that thing is obvious if i open the camera app on my iphone it should be the shutter button and it is and that kicks ass sometimes i want it to do something and I should be able to make it do that thing. And I feel like so many times with the watch, Apple is like, this is a small screen. People don't want to spend too much time on it. We have to do all the work magically for them. And sometimes it works and way too often, I feel like it doesn't. And speaking of things that way too often don't work, Siri is the other thing I was curious about because Apple made a bunch of noise about Siri being offline and working on device, which if it is successful, it's a huge deal for the watch, right? Like it, it opens up all kinds of things you can do if you don't have a cellular device, if you're out in the world doing stuff, like potentially a big deal. What have you seen so far? Yeah, it works. It just works. Like, okay, um... wait, hold on, hold on. Do you want to be on the record saying Siri works? I just like, I just want to be so clear about what you just I'm getting said. into caveats. <laughs> okay. just, just give me a second to get into the butt uh, of this here. So, okay. you know, it does now work if you don't have your phone and you're not in any kind of internet connection. So like your laundry room is in your basement, you left your phone upstairs, your hands are tied up, uh, and you want to set the stupid laundry timer so that you know when to go get your laundry. Now you can say like, hey, set this timer and it'll do it, which feels like a thing that it should have been able to do already. This happened to me, by the way, literally this morning. I was doing daycare drop off with my kid, needed to remind myself to do something. I had left my phone at home and my watch just was useless to me. Yeah. Like this very simple, basic thing that it ought to be able to do, it couldn't do. Yeah, it can do that now. It's pretty reliably. um, I turned airplane mode on my phone and the watch on and made sure that there was no Wi-Fi connection still. And it was it was able to do stuff. It was even able to pull weather updates because it had pulled that already. It may not have been the most accurate weather update at that point in time, but it was able to like give me an update, which I had not been expecting because as I understand it, if it needs to pull some sort of data from the internet, it still needs the internet connection. It's more so that you can do tasks like, oh, uh, set a timer, or I guess in my case, set a workout. Like, I don't know if you're in the trails of, of like Missouri somewhere where there's no any kind of internet connection and your phone doesn't even have an internet connection. Well, now you can hands-free set a workout, which there is a use case for that. But I think for most people, that's not a thing that they've necessarily thought to do, but it can do it now. So yay. Huzzah. I've had the opportunity to test the new Siri as well. I I haven't, my demo unit doesn't have the double tap, but I do have the new Siri. And I think the thing that is actually impactful is for me, at least when I'm outside on the grill, I set timers for how long to keep, leave the burgers on before I need to flip them or whatever. And because I'm like on the edge of my Wi-Fi network, it like, I will watch the, I will do the, the command and watch the watch figure itself out. And so, but with the series nine, I was able to just say, set a timer for five minutes and it just did it. And so like, I think those are like more practical use cases for where this better improved on device Siri is going to make an impact. I will add that this new Siri doesn't do anything that the old Siri couldn't do. So it's not like Siri gets smarter or more capable. It's just, it works better at the things that it could already do because it doesn't have to send your voice command out to the internet, transcribe it and bring it back down to the watch. My biggest issue with Siri on the watch has always been that it it seems to just fail completely a lot more often than Siri elsewhere with really basic things like trying to set a reminder or add something to my calendar or set a timer even. It much more often does the thing where it thinks 
and then it still thinks and then nothing happens. And my assumption has always been that's because of this sort of like daisy chain of connections it's having to do in order to get the information back to the watch. Have you noticed that being any better on the watch because it's able to run locally? I would think it would just be able to do more things more reliably. Yeah, it has been more reliable for me, except with understanding me. That is just the same level of, you know, like it's better. Like it can finally understand Mahershala Ali's name, which I've been using for years as a litmus test. Progress. Okay. Understand me. And, you know, it's gotten better over the years, like four or five years ago. It was just like, Herschel Walker. And it's like, no, that's that's not what I said. <laughs> it's a different guy. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> completely different name. But, you know, I, I live in a community where it's mixed language. I have to communicate with people with names that are not English. And with that respect, it is still not great. Like I was, I was messaging my friend and I was like, oh, new K-pop album come out. Do Kyung Soo, we love him. And it's like Joe Fang Fu or something like that. <laughs> and it was like, no, that's not his oh, name. Boy. That's not how it works. Okay. We, we still have to do the thing where when I'm messaging my friends and with like Korean loan words, we have to go like bulgogi for it to understand me and it for it to be clear and not to be ridiculous. And we had a lot of fun testing the dictation. Our video producer had me rap alphabet aerobics. And that was certainly a time. I did a bunch of tongue twisters about Betty Butter and her bitter butter and her better butter and buying them. And for the most part, I want to say both my S8 powered Ultra and the S9 powered Series 9 kind of overall did about the same in terms of accuracy. Okay. So I don't know if that's just me and the way I pronounce and... As Owen says, wow, you talk fast. So I'm not sure <laughs> if I'm like having issues because I'm in an edge case of people who talk at the speed of New York, but it's 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 better, just not so much better that if you upgraded now, you would be like, oh my God, they finally fixed Siri, that kind of thing. Yeah, that tracks. So full takeaway here, like it seems to me that if you bought a watch in the last couple of years, you're going to get watchOS 10. Is Double Tap coming to these other devices or is that only in the new stuff? Okay. That is only on the new watches along with the precision finding. Those are only on the new watches. And as far as I understand it, it's because, you know, some people have been like, why? Assistive touch works on the older watches. Why won't Double Touch work on those watches? And it's because assistive touch is powered on the CPU directly. It's very power intensive. Double Tap is powered by the neural engine. So it can be offloaded a bit and is a lot more power efficient and can run in the background. That's that's the line they're giving all of us. So I, I like my interpretation is if they were to put double tap on the older watches, your battery life would be even more in the toilet than it currently is. So basically, in my review, I say if you have a Series 7, 8 or an original Ultra, cool your jets, contribute to Apple's carbon neutral plans and don't buy yourself a new there watch. You go. Yeah, it seems like even if Double Tap is like really meaningful to you, waiting a year for like developers to figure it out and the feature will get better seems like the move. Dan, you're nodding like you you agree with me. Yeah, I think in a year, Double Tap will be more useful. Uh, Maybe Apple will have opened it up to third party developers in a more meaningful way. Maybe we'll have other gestures arriving that like use the same kind of concept and logic that allows you to do this thing for now. If you have the new watches, if you get the new watches, it's neat. But I think V would agree that it's not a like absolute must have feature. No. And you can, you can, 
experiment if you have a, a seven or eight with assistive touch to see whether gesture control is something you even like. Because if you're like, oh, this, whatever, I'm not passionate about this, then you really don't need, you have like empirical evidence that you don't need to update just for double tap. I will say that going forward, I think the combination of rearranging the watch to be very widget centric and double tap kind of is like a fundamental groundwork that they're laying to change the way that we interact with the device. Yeah. So it's weird because on that one hand, I'm seeing that and I'm and I, I like I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. You are changing how we fundamentally interact with these devices, but you're doing it in a way where it's like, oh, what if I left this book of secrets out on this <laughs> table? Who is curious enough to right. come and read this book of secrets? And let's see what they do with that. And they're in the bushes somewhere in the back with their little binoculars going, what are they doing? That's kind of what this is. They're they're laying some very important groundwork to change the Apple Watch to be a single-handed device, much in the way that, you know, Dan pointed this out, to be more like the iPhone, which is a, you know, if you get it in the right size, everyone will agree that it is a single-handed device. And you're making it so that it's much more different. It's not just a mini phone on your wrist because the way that these new apps have been redesigned and that the way the widget stack works on the Apple Watch, you don't need quite as much of your phone because there is a lot of information that's glanceable and a lot of information that you can operate with one hand now. And that's not something that you've really been able to do before. So I think once this gets refined going forward, maybe, I don't want to say for the 10, but maybe the 11 or the 12, I don't think we'll be using these watches in the same way that we currently do. I like it. All right. Thank you both. We got to take one more break and then we're going to switch things up a little bit and talk about how we take these devices, which millions or tens of millions or billions of people buy and make them feel a lot more like ours. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
Welcome back. One of the things I like about this time of year is that it ends up being phone cleaning time. It's like spring cleaning in the spring, phone cleaning in the fall. Particularly if you're an iPhone user, this is the time of year you probably get some new software with some new features, some new widgets, a bunch of weird new gestures and interaction ideas. And it's just a fun moment to kind of take stock of how you use your phone, which apps get a spot on your home screen, all that good stuff. This year's iOS, iOS 17, brings one of the biggest changes in a while, which is one we've already been talking about in this episode, interactive widgets. Instead of widgets just being things you look at, they're now things you can do. And widgets are actually a big feature of pretty much all of Apple's new software this year. The Apple Watch got a redesign with watchOS 10, so it's basically now just a clock and a bunch of widgets. macOS is getting widgets with Sonoma. The iPad got widgets on the lock screen. It's just widgets all the way down, y'all. It's great. Oh, and I should say, before we get too far into this, if you're yelling at your podcast player right now, Android did it first, please know that I know, and I'm with you, and Android widgets have been way better than iOS widgets for years. That is absolutely true. But this is new for the iPhone users, so, you know, let them have this one. Anyway, as all of this has been coming out, I've been trying to figure out not just which widgets I want to use, but how to think about widgets and how widgets work across all of these devices. Just on the iPhone, you have home screen widgets and lock screen widgets. There's the dynamic island. There's live activities. There's just a lot of different ways that information moves around the iPhone, and it can be kind of confusing. So to figure it out, I decided to call up the expert, David Smith. Apple added widgets, and it was great. And they worked, and it didn't have any negative impacts. It was only positive ones. David makes an app called Widgetsmith that is probably the most powerful and most successful widget-making app on the planet. It was a massive hit when it first came out in 2020, which you might remember was iOS 14, which was when home screen widgets came to the iPhone for the first time. This year, for iOS 17, he's got a big update to Widgetsmith with a bunch of really cool interactive widgets. You can now scroll the weather on your home screen. There's a way to flip through your music, like the cover flow thing that used to be in the iPod. It's just delightful. David knows how widgets work better than just about anybody. And I think he understands how Apple thinks about them too, which is really helpful. So I called him up and asked him all of my questions, starting with the most burning one, oddly enough. Is it as surprising to you as it is to me that people love widgets this much? Yes. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if I really expected widgets to be as big as they were when I started getting into the widget business. Like, Widgetsmith was not something that I expected it to ever be this massive app that kind of you know, had a viral moment and like took over the world for a few weeks. And like, it was the, like, I did not expect that at all. I, I, I think I was excited about widgets when they first came out, but it was that definitely had no expectation for just how much like pent up demand there is for that kind of thing that people really want that kind of interaction and that kind of experience. And so, yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like, oh, and it just keeps coming like this year. I think other than Apple TV, widgets are everywhere on Apple's platforms now. It's um, really so true. It was definitely like, Okay, well, I guess next year I know what to expect. You know, somehow it's going to be widgets on Apple TV because they just, you know, complete the set. But yeah, it's a little wild. Yeah, I have to say, I did not expect Widgetsmith to get as big as it did either. I, I sort of put it in the like shortcuts bucket at first, where it's like this mm -hmm. is a cool thing. It's a little, you know, fiddly and finicky, and there's a lot of people who like that. But this is not necessarily going to be sort of a mainstream thing. But the number of people who even in the early days, were like willing to do the work to make a photo widget that looked nice on their home screen was just 
like orders of magnitude bigger than I would have expected. It was wild. The customization people started doing is the minute they were able to do it and the amount of work that they would put in to do it just kind of blew my mind from the very beginning. And I've like not really forgotten that lesson since then. I mean, it certainly helped that it launched in 2020, when I think there was a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands to sort of to to work on that level. But yeah, like the amount that people care about how what their home screen looks like is dramatic. Like there's a meaningful thing that people really care about. You know how what exactly what their home screen looks like, what what colors it is, what fonts it is, the layout of it, and they're willing to put in the effort to to make that happen. And so, yeah, it's like, I definitely, when I launched Widgetsmith, I think very much shortcuts is a great analogy that I was like, oh, this is a cool niche feature for like, you know, sort of power usery kind of people who enjoy really, you know, sort of tweaking and fiddling with things. And it turned out actually, no, it's everyone. And, you know, it's like middle school kids through like, you know, retirees who are all just, they, they just want to have, you know, the, this device that they spend so much of their day looking at, they just want it to be exactly the way they want it. And, you know, Widgetsmith was like, it turned out to be the tool that, uh, helps them accomplish that. I am curious how you've, like, over the last three years, I've even had trouble thinking about where information kind of lives on your phone. First, it was just widgets, and then it was lock screen widgets, and then it was live activities, and then it was the dynamic island. And we've gotten to this point where it's like, how I define a widget gets more complicated over time. And you've kind of tentacled out into some of those things too. Like, do you have a really good sort of mental picture of how all of that stuff works and fits together and makes sense? Sure. I mean, I think at at its core, widgets are about taking little bits of an app and exporting them outside of the app itself. Okay. And I think depending on what kind of experience you're trying to pull out of the app, those different locations, whether it's a home screen widget, a lock screen widget, uh, whether it's a live activity or a live activity in the dynamic island, but what makes sense in each of those places is going to be very different. If it's something that is like just showing the temperature, for example, is a great lock screen widget. It's something that's small, concise, useful, and very glanceable. It's not something that you need. You know, it's just, you just want to know how hot it is outside uh, in the same way that we put the time on our lock screen and we all got rid of our watches. And so like that kind of data was great on the lock screen. But I think home screen is to gets into this, you start to get into a place where it's like, well, do I want a bit more? Can I, you know, have a lot more space? I can be like, have a bit more there. And is it allowing me to get the data that I want out of an app without having to go into that app? Mm. And then live activities and the dynamic island, it tends to be much more the sense of, is there data that is act, that is changing in a very real-time way, which doesn't really lend itself to the other forms because of the performance limitations that Apple puts on the other types of widget? Those widgets, you know, the home screen and lock screen widgets are static, essentially. I mean, there's interactivity we have this year, but fundamentally, they are showing a snapshot of data. And so it, if it's updating in real time, they are not the right place for that. And so instead, Apple made this other place where you have these temporary experiences that are widgets that are given special permission to update very regularly. You know, where you're updating a few times, you know, it's like every few seconds rather than every few minutes. And that, I think, is sort of generally the way that I think about these sort of this hierarchy of different widget experiences we have now, that they sort of go from the small to the large and then from the kind of real time to the just sort of static. And where you are on the sort of on those on those axes determines which one of those widget types you're going to be in. But there's definitely more and more places that we're sort of our widgets are being put because they're catering to different needs or to different uh, sort of user desires. That's really helpful perspective, actually, because I will say as a as a user who does not understand the sort of performance 
capabilities of each one. The distinction between kind of what's allowed to refresh constantly and what isn't never really made a lot of sense to me. And I think the the thing that has been the hardest for me is to figure out the difference between like a very good home screen widget and let's say a live activity. Sure. Because to me, those should those should just be the same thing. And I get that they're not. And I get that there are sort of artificial reasons that they can't be. But the idea of having something that is like, why can't I run a, I don't know, FaceTime call from a widget on my home screen? Like, that seems like a thing that maybe should exist in the world. I don't know if that's a good idea or not. But it, it's just interesting that there are those kind of artificial limitations put on each one to make that hierarchy. And when you understand it like that, that hierarchy does kind of make sense, even though as a user... I'm kind of like, just just like, let me, I just want to be able to hit a thing and just say, update this. Like like the thing you can do with your email inbox where you decide how often it pulls or just have it push whenever there's new stuff. Like I kind of want that in all my widgets too, even if it crushes my battery life. I don't know. Sure. I mean, I think this is an area that I think is very, it's been a fascinating sort of timeline with Apple because widgets originally, the first version of widgets was the Today View screen that they right. added back in, I can remember, much older versions of, of iOS. And that was actually something more akin to a fully running app that was running, like when you looked at your Today View, that app was running and it could do all kinds of real-time things and could be true, yeah. much more lively and interactive and you could have buttons and you could do all these things. But it, in order to do that, Apple had to like put it somewhere to the side so that it wasn't running all the time, that it was only running if you swiped over to, you know, to the left of your home screen. But that also meant that it wasn't nearly as useful because you had to go and find it in order to do it. And, you know, the reason they did that is, of course, is, you know, it's performance and battery that it's... Whenever, if you allow an app to run all the time, inevitably bad things are going to happen. In terms <laughs> sure. of there's security issues, there's uh, battery life issues, there's is it interacting with other you know, other apps that are running on the on your phone issues, and so I think very wisely in many ways what Apple instead did is they built the you know the standard widgets that you see are just a they're a very clever snapshot, but almost just like a picture that mm. my app will generate and send over to, to to iOS and then iOS can show that that picture and it doesn't cost them anything. There's no performance hit. You know, I I can display a widget on your home screen all day and it isn't costing you any more battery life than if you just had a collection of apps uh, app icons there. And I think that sort of is the cleverness that behind what they did they've done by doing that. But yeah, it creates this weird tension between it's like, well, why isn't it an app? Well it's like if we gave you what you want and let you run a full app inside of a widget, then your overall experience of your phone will be worse because inevitably it's going to be draining on your device in a way that isn't actually getting you, you know, you're not getting enough utility to justify the battery drain and uh, performance hit that you're getting. And so instead they're taking this very incremental approach and saying, it's like, well, we're going to do this snapshot approach. You know, we're going to do live activities where it's like they're special and time bound and they live in a special place. Uh, and even there, the technology that they're using to do those is similarly based on snapshots and clever things. A live activity isn't a live app that's running all the time. It's just an app that's given permission to refresh itself very regularly. I see. Okay. Rather than something that is actually like a, a window into the application itself. And then similarly with interactivity, they did the same exact thing where instead they're just saying, if a user pushes on a particular part of a widget, you get a, a, a guaranteed refresh instantly. Uh, so you can respond to the user's interaction and it feels like you're interacting with an app, but actually you're, it's just a very special way to say, give me the next snapshot, give me the next snapshot. And as a result, it's super performant because the last time you hit that button, the last time it generates that snapshot, 
it's done and all the work is done and it'll be go back to immediately using zero battery uh, and impacting your, you know, your device at all from that point on goes immediately to zero. And so I think it's a very clever approach in that regard, technically. And it's just a very, it means that there's these weird distinctions users have to sort of navigate. But overall, it means that I think widgets can be used everywhere. And the story wasn't Apple added widgets. And then my battery was toast. Right. It's like Apple added widgets and it was great and they worked and it didn't have any negative impacts. It was only positive ones. That makes sense. So yeah, is you've been goofing around with interactivity. I've been using some of the stuff you found in Widgetsmith. What do you make of it so far? Like, did they, does that balance feel right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the balance they've struck right now with interactivity, I think is very, is very strong in the sense of it's, it's amazing what you can get done with just you know, getting a guaranteed refresh based on a user action, like it is surprisingly powerful for what the interactions and the inter- the, the experiences that you can build with that. You know, the WWC keynote was just like checking an item off a to-do list, which seems a bit basic. And it's like, you can totally do that. It's like, or you can, you know, scroll through your calendar in, you know, sort of dynamically or look at a weather forecast and say, you know, it's an hourly forecast and you want to see the next six hours after that. Well, you can tap and it'll slide over and they can do things there where they can make these rich, it can make the experience that much richer and creates that many fewer places and reasons why you have to actually get into the app in the first place. And I think that's what interactivity mostly is allowing at this point is it reminds me a lot of uh, watchOS apps where like a really good watchOS app is an app that it typically is something that you're only going to experience for a few seconds, that it's you're going in to get something and then coming out. And it's not an app that you're expecting to just like be sitting, tapping on your wrist for five minutes. It's something that you're going to be in in seconds. And similarly, I think interactive widgets allow you to have those same kinds of interactions on your home screen, where rather than having to open the app to do something, maybe you can just, you know, tap two or three times on the widget to get to the exact data view that you're interested in or the exact you know behavior you want, and then you're done. And you never actually had to launch the app to do that. And so I think they've struck a really interesting balance. I think, I doubt this is the final form of it. Like my suspicion is that there will be more things that will come over time as they've kind of explore how, you know, how users respond to interactivity. But it feels like they've been taking this incrementally growing out the widget story over the last, you know, since 2020. And it, I doubt they're done at this point. I think it's a bit, this seems like a very meaningful step forward to make them not just static things, but to have the, the user expectation of being able to interact with them in the first place. Got it. Okay. So, yeah, I, I guess part of me is trying to figure out how far I want that to go because it's like oh, the check off the to do list example is a good one, right? That's that's an easy, obvious thing that it's always been sort of ridiculous. You have to open an app for, but then it's like, okay, I want to edit a task. Should it open up a text box on top of the widget? That seems like probably not. I don't know. It's it's there. There's finding out where that middle ground sort of eventually ought to be with all of this is really interesting. And I think that like refresh the snapshot thing makes me think that if that's the paradigm, it's always going to be just kind of you can do one thing at a time. And this is not meant to be like a multi-step tool. It's a look at this thing and then look at this thing. Yes. And that that maybe that's enough. Yeah. And I think if we got further things, I think they would be in that same model. And it reminds me a bit of how in notifications, when you get a notification and it's like you can respond to the, like someone sends you a text, you can respond to that text without opening the messages app Hmm. in terms of you can respond inside the notification is a thing that they've allowed you to do for, for a while now. And I think I could imagine a similar thing in widgets where it's like you have the ability to, you know, prompt the user for text. 
And so if you wanted to have a to-do list app where you are able to add items directly from your home screen, it would be through some kind of you know system managed process where you would tap a button and then the keyboard would pop up with a little text view. You're typing whatever it is you want. You hit return, that gets sent to the app and then it ref- refreshes the widget. So you're not launching, like the, the app is not is only ever getting the text. It's not, I'm, I'm not responsible for the keyboard. It's not an interactive experience in the same way, but it's a way of kind of pushing that next step forward. Because I think anything they do is going to be through this kind of very regimented approach where your widgets are locked down in a way that is very performant and clever. But it's like, if they added text entry in iOS 18, like that would seem like a very logical next step to do. And there's expands the range of activities that would be potentially useful that, you know, you could imagine a notes app or to do app or any kind of thing that you're collect regularly collecting little bits of information. That seems great to not have to, to open an app in order to do that. As interactivity opened up your brain on stuff you want to put into Widgetsmith, I think most of the stuff I've seen so far is kind of extensions on the things you've already been doing. The one I've been using constantly is the being able to scroll the hourly forecast. I love that. Sure. Like it's, it's one of those little things I didn't expect to like really care about, but it loves, it's, it's delightful. But are there things you've been either building or looking at that are sort of totally new and different because of interactivity? Sure. I mean, I think, I mean, the, the, the most like uh, silly example of that is like being able to put games into your widgets, which mm. doesn't, it's like, it's a, it's a completely silly thing in many ways, but like sometimes the silly things are the best things. And like, that's an example of something that just wasn't possible before. And now you can, and obviously there's limitations on a game because it has to be a game that you can play only by sort of intermittent tapping that is not in a timely way. So like tic-tac-toe in a widget would totally work. Yes, exactly. Okay. Like something in any kind of game where there's you're taking turns or that kind of behavior is definitely something that's possible. But you know, you're not going to be able to make Flappy Bird for the widget because there's no sense of timeliness to the, the you know when you tap and how it responds. But I think that's a kind of thing that's, I don't think the game ne- itself necessarily is the end state of that, but I think that's an example of the kind of thing that you can start to do where just having the ability to respond to a button tap opens up a variety of things that you could come up with and you could think of that allow you to do. And like, I mean, so I've done a bunch of things with related to music. It was actually a, a widget that I found super helpful for me is I've made a little like a cover flow widget. So, you know, so you can put, put your albums uh, into a, a medium widget and you can, you know, sort of do tap on the edges and you can scroll through them and then you can tap on the one in the middle and it'll start to play. And because it's interactive, I don't, you don't have to launch the app for it to play. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not needing you to even do an app launch. It can just start. And then because the now playing experience goes up into the, not, you know, the dynamic island, you just see that the album started playing and you can, you know, move on. And I think that kind of thing is just really just different that it feels very interesting to not even have to duck in and out of an app. Like previously, if I'd done music widgets, it's like, well, you have to launch Widgetsmith, it'll start to play, and then you have to quit it because that you always had to have this weird round trip to the app, even if the app was doing hardly anything. You know, or similarly, you can start workouts uh, is another thing uh, with interactivity where you could, you know, you can say you're going for a run and you tap it and your phone just starts tracking your run without having to open oh. an app necessarily. And it can just jump into the the live activity or the dynamic island and you can tap the widget and then you can lock your phone and then off you go and it's your progress would show up on your home you know on your lock screen in the live activity and it's not like that one step is huge but i feel like taking the number of times that you can take out that one step will add up over time uh, in terms of its value and utility 
After David and I talked, naturally, I put a thousand new widgets on my iPhone. But while I'm in the middle of this personalization craze, I started thinking about changing my wallpaper and my app icons, too, both of which are also really good ways to personalize your phone and make it work the way that you want it to. I ended up buying a wallpaper from a guy named Isaac Mosna, who you might know as Knoopsy from YouTube and elsewhere on the internet. Today, I'll be showing you how I've set up my phone, some of the apps I use, and generally how I've customized it to match my style and how I use my device. I like the wallpaper, it looks great, but it kind of made me wonder, what is it like being in the iPhone personalization business? There are countless free iPhone wallpapers online, so how do you make some that people will pay for? What makes them pay for it? And what makes a great wallpaper great anyway? So I called up Isaac and asked him, and I asked him just to start at the very beginning. How do you become a person who makes wallpapers? It was kind of for myself originally because I making YouTube videos, I can never find the the wallpaper I wanted to like showcase in a YouTube video. Because you don't want to just have the same like stock wallpapers everybody has, right? No, no, I, I couldn't do that. I'm like I used to do that, but then like making videos, everybody has like a really nice, vibrant, eye-catching wallpaper in the thumbnail. And uh I used like a lot of them and then I just kind of got sick of hunting and searching and being like, okay, this is okay. But like, I wish it was a bit more orange or a bit more blue because the thumbnail idea I have doesn't really work or, you know, in the video, it doesn't really match the the scheme of like my set design. So I'm like, what if I just made them? And it was during COVID. So I had so much time, like I was home and I'm like, I'm going to get my iPad out. I'm going to start drawing. I'm going to start making some wallpapers. And I thought I was pretty happy with my original designs. And I thought that they looked, they looked great and match my style of like minimal designs and match sort of my thumbnail style and my video style. It was all a nice cohesive experience. You know, being a YouTube video, people would ask immediately, like, where'd you get your wallpaper from? It's the most common question in any tech video on a phone or a tablet or a laptop. (laughs) It's like, where's the wallpaper from? For me, I, I just made them all. So eventually... I was able to launch a Shopify store with my zero knowledge of web design. I was able <laughs> nice. to figure it out and Shopify makes it really easy to do all that stuff. And, you know, Shopify makes the whole sales process very easy too. Yeah. Let's me sell to whoever I want. Uh, there's apps to have digital downloads, all that fun stuff. And next thing you know, I'm dropping a wallpaper pack every few weeks. And wallpaper packs for me just consist of different designs that kind of go together in a specific theme I like to have fun with it. I like to like think of really cool names for all the wallpaper names for all the different wallpapers in a pack, have like a very themed design for like the mock-up photos. Pretty much every pack would have like new photos with little quirks and little fun things here and there. And I didn't really know how well it would do, but then it just started blowing up. Like it was just nonstop. It almost became a full business. I almost had to hire somebody to manage like customer service wow. and manage hosting the website. I'm thankful that I, w- I had just finished uh, university. So I was like ready to go. I was ready to work. And my whole focus was dedicated to YouTube, Instagram, other content production, and, and now my website with these wallpapers. Why do you think it worked so well? I mean, wallpapers are a funny thing in that there are a billion of them out there, right? Like if you just Google like iPhone wallpaper, like you can you can look through the options until the day you die and you'll never run out. Like I wonder if there is something to just like you have a style that fits and people just like understand your style and like your style and that goes a long way. I don't know, like why do you think it took off the way it did? It's a mix of different things. It's a mix of people seeing the wallpaper in action on my channel, people who know my style, they know I like these sort of designs. 
people seeing it in use, it's great. I think also Apple's customization push was also a good thing. It came at the right time. People like to make their phone personal and they like to make it something that is uniquely them. Because one thing that I also envisioned too, or I at least thought of when designing these is like, we don't really hang that many things up in our homes anymore, like art or designs, but our phone is like a canvas that we see every single day. It's like, we turn it on, we see a wallpaper or a new wallpaper that cycles. And to be able to see like a little bit of art or a nice design, it has the same effect as art in your home. Whether When you come home and you see it, you have like this nice feeling of this is familiar or this makes me feel a certain way. If something is dynamic and bold and bright, it kind of like wakes you up a little bit. It makes you feel a bit more energetic. And obviously I'm just talking about a image or yeah. a, a JPEG, but it's like, it, it does have that feeling. Whenever I turn my phone on, like I get hit with like a bold textured, vibrant piece and makes me happy. So it's a mix of different things. No, I, I think I think you're totally right. So take me through the process a little bit. Like you you sit down and you're like, okay, I wanna I wanna do a new pack, a new collection. Where do you start? So pretty much I like to start with colors. I think colors are the best place to start for me personally in the way I work. Let's say I want to do like a very cool toned palette. Maybe it's like a purple and a pink and a blue. I start to just mess with things. I usually use Procreate. I've done some stuff in Illustrator, some stuff in Photoshop, but usually Procreate is the most consistent best way I work. I know how it works to a T now. I know how all the brushes work, how everything kind of flows. And I think Procreate is so great because it's very natural and organic versus a computer. You're like typing and you're clicking things. It's not as natural as like a pen or your finger. So I'll start by like mixing around different colors and trying different gradients or trying different shapes. And then usually I'm able to just think of the pack right there. Like, let's say it's like a 2d shape based pack. I start drawing some flowing shapes. I start adding different colors. You know, things aren't really in the right place. I tweak them a little bit. Maybe I'll warp a shape a little bit until I really get that exact shape and form I want. If it's a more abstract, like gradient-based or like a really flowing designed pack, I'll just mess with it until I think it looks right. And I think it has like the feeling I want. Then I do things like add a little bit of noise, add a bit of sharpness to things, tweak the colors a little bit. And then I throw them onto most of my devices to test them out. So I have it on my phone. Looks good. Okay, that's that's solid. Put it on the desktop. Uh, I don't really know how that looks on the desktop. Maybe I have to tweak this one area a little bit. Maybe I have to blow this part up a little bit. Pull it back on the iPad. Tweak that. Send it to the desktop. Try it on the iPad as well. And then once it's all shit, once it's all like in a, in a state that I like, I'm ready to ship it onto my website. I do all the mock-up photos. I shoot everything you know, name everything as well, based on how I feel, what the pack conveys in terms of the overall collection name and all the different names of all the different pieces. And then load it all up, write a nice little description, and then that's it. So talk to me about the icon pack before I forget to ask about the icon pack. Yeah. I find icons so fascinating because yeah. like, you only have one wallpaper. There are a million apps out there in the world. So I would think trying to make an icon pack that like is both sort of cohesive and looks nice, but also like exists in a world where everybody has a mountain of different apps on their phone strikes me as very hard. So like what made you want to do this in the first place? Like you just saw everybody customizing and you're like, I want to, I want to see how I can be part of this too. In some regards, but also like when I started designing the wallpapers, I felt like for my phone personally, 
the icons like icons are all over the place these days you know there's like so many different colors some of them are all black some of them are all white and i just couldn't really think of a way to make it look cohesive so i'll have the wallpaper that i'm really happy with but then i'm like okay but the icons are just they kind of mess with the color scheme and you know i like to keep things simple usually i like to keep things pretty minimal with design so i just wanted to have like a set that is you can either choose just you can choose all black or all white and uh that's it so with the with my icon path, like it's obviously a very specific taste. Like I hand drew every single icon. I don't remember exactly how icons how many icons there are at this point. That's so many icons. I know. I just it was all like stock apps and then also a bunch of the popular apps that people use every single day. And I just wanted to make something that was very different than what everybody else did. Cause I think a lot of people just shipped literally the same icons and like different different packs like everybody was dropping icon packs and a lot of them were just the same icons and i just thought like what there was so much like very basic like clip art looking stuff in all those icon packs yeah and the reason why is because it was the easiest way to make a lot of money like there was all these stories about some developer making a hundred thousand in a month off of a minimal icon pack and everybody wants to make a hundred thousand in a month (laughs) but it's like I can't do stuff like that. Like I just couldn't just ship out a random pack and then use my channels to promote it because I would feel bad. And also like, I probably wouldn't have designed all those icons. Like where are they coming from? But obviously I don't mean to trash talk that designer. I think he was one of the first people to see the potential of custom icons. And I think he did it all by himself, which is great. I love that. I love seeing successes like that. Yeah. So for my collection, I wanted to have things that would fit my style, be a little bit unique, be a little bit different. It's not obviously for everyone. But the people who do like it are always sharing uh, screenshots on Twitter or Instagram, tell me how much they like it, and uh, request icons that they want to add. And obviously, I can't do every single icon. I'm not physically capable of doing that. But uh, I like to be able to have icons for most of the popular apps and all the stock apps. And now with um, the new iPhones that have dynamic islands, it hides that really annoying shortcut notification that drops down every single time you open a shortcut, as I'm sure you're familiar with. That's one of the biggest things that prevented me from even doing this in the first place, like even wanting to use icons. Because when, you know, this ability first came out, it was okay. Like, it was like, you know, that drop down, you forget it's there, you get used to it. Either decide, do I want to see that notification every single time? Or do I have a nice, beautiful custom home screen? And obviously, a lot of people have chosen the latter because it's worth the trade-off to sometimes have that customization in place. But now with the new dynamic island functionality, you don't see that notification at all. It hides it in the island. It's very, very subtle. And now, even with things like the camera, before, if you used a shortcut uh, with a custom icon to open up the camera app, it would take an extra full second for the camera oh, to like be ready yeah. to go. Cancel. Deal break. I can't deal with, deal with that. But now, you can do it. And uh, if you're willing to go through the process, which isn't super terrible these days, and there are very... Uh, cohesive guides and i think even shortcuts you can download it's pretty easy to do but for me personally my home screen is very clean and i like to have just a couple icons everything else is in the app library and that's how i like it so i like that are you just a one home screen guy yeah yeah i I admire that i aspire to be that it's all that works for me at this point i like to have four apps in the dock and then four apps uh, on my home screen a little square arrangement using the clear spaces app because I don't really want to see too much. When I turn my phone on, I want to be able to see my wallpaper and also be able to just see the core apps I need and any distracting things like 
uh, Instagram and Twitter, all those are on in the app library. So they're not like the first thing I see when I turn my phone on. After I talked to Isaac, I blew up my whole phone again. I got rid of a bunch of the widgets, I changed my wallpaper again, and I changed a few icons. I didn't change all of my icons, just the four in my dock, which tend to be the ones that never really move around, and they're all a single style now. I really like how it looks. Plus, I now have just two home screens, one is apps and one is widgets, and I think Isaac's right that less is more there. The app library or the app drawer on Android do the job great. After all this, suffice to say, my phone looks really different than it did a few weeks ago. And it was a really fun exercise, actually. I wound up not just changing the look of my phone, but really thinking about where I want things to be and what I want to have easy access to, and maybe just as important, what I don't want to have easy access to. Plus, what my home screen and wallpaper and icons and widgets should not just do, but make me feel every time I turn my phone on. Not everyone is going to want to go down this unbelievable rabbit hole of personalization and shortcuts and widgets and all kinds of different stuff, and that's okay. But I think it's worth at least spending a few minutes to make sure that when you turn your phone on, as we all do a million times a day, it feels the way you want it to. Because I think that's important. All right, that's enough Apple Talk. That is it for The Vergecast today. Thanks to everybody who came on the show, and thank you, as always, for listening. There's lots more from everything we talked about on TheVerge.com. We'll put some links to all our reviews in the show notes, but also, you know, read TheVerge.com. There's so much gadget news this week. There's Xbox leaks. There's a Microsoft event. There's an Amazon event. There's a ton happening. All of it is on TheVerge.com. If you have thoughts, questions, feelings, or other phones you think people should buy instead of the iPhone 15, you can always email us at vergecast at theverge.com or keep calling the hotline 866-VERGE11. Send us all of your thoughts and questions. And again, this is probably the last call for this. If you have questions about The Verge or The Vergecast, send them in. The meta episode is coming really soon. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Brooke Minters is our editorial director of audio. The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Milai, Alex, and I will be back on Friday to talk about Amazon, Microsoft, why Amazon and Microsoft are suddenly kind of at odds about gadgets, Xbox, and all the other stuff going on this week. See you then. Rock and roll. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.